Our scripture today is John 12, 20 through 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, God will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Abba, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason I have come to this hour. Abba, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. These are the sacred stories. During our coffee time about six weeks ago, I was asked to share about my work as a hospice chaplain. I didn't have time to tell a lot of stories, so Laura invited me to proclaim during Lent. I've been a chaplain since 1996, serving in hospitals, seed corrections, and hospice, but my heart has always been in hospice care. I see it as a privilege to walk alongside patients and families as they seek meaning in the midst of suffering. One of my first hospice patients nearly 20 years ago was a young man we'll call Arnold in Mobile, Alabama. He was in his mid-20s, although multiple brain hemorrhages had left him with the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. Arnold suffered from end-stage sickle cell, which meant that his blood was filled with the equivalent of broken glass. Arnold spoke with great difficulty, and he was bedbound, but his smile always lit up the room. I visited Arnold every Friday for over a year. Most of our visits took place over a game of dominoes on his bedside table. As we played, Arnold would share his concerns not about himself, but about his mother, his cousins, and his friends. Unable to leave his room, Arnold spent hours encouraging people over the phone. Watching pro wrestling and playing video games helped distract him from his pain. Arnold always asked me to pray for him, and sometimes he would voice a prayer for me. One Friday afternoon, I went to visit Arnold in our inpatient facility, where he would go for a few days whenever his pain got out of control. Arnold's limbs were contracted, and his skin tone was dusky. Arnold was in too much pain to play dominoes, so I brought him some special medicine, a borrowed VHS copy of WrestleMania 18, which had just aired the previous Sunday on pay-per-view. 
For those of you that may be unfamiliar with the WWE, it's not on PBS. This show matches on broadcast TV two or three times a week. But all the really good stuff happens at the monthly pay-per-view events, of which WrestleMania is the equivalent of the Super Bowl. Arnold loved watching wrestling, but he'd never seen a pay-per-view event. This year's highlight was a match between Hulk Hogan and The Rock, which is arguably one of the five greatest matches ever. Arnold's face lit up as he watched two of wrestling's biggest stars throw away the script and battle all over the arena. By the time it was over, Arnold was relaxed and able to rest. He died a few days later. Arnold's entire hospice team attended his homegoing service at a packed missionary Baptist church, complete with paper fans, courtesy of the local funeral home. Dozens of people got up to speak about the way Arnold's life had touched theirs through his smile, his encouraging words, and his selflessness. About an hour north of Mobile, there's a Creek Indian Reservation, where I visited a patient we'll call TJ. Mr. TJ was in his 90s and very soft-spoken. His wardrobe consisted entirely of overalls and flannel shirts. Mr. TJ had an ancient 12-inch TV with rabbit ears that only picked up the religious stations. If anyone asked how he was doing, Mr. TJ would always reply, Very nice. Mr. T.J. lived alone in a 300-square-foot shack. His only living family member was a cousin who was also in hospice care on the other side of the reservation. So we became Mr. T.J.'s family. His nurse would deliver his groceries once a week, and his aide made him breakfast several days a week. The social worker and I tried to visit on days where Mr. T.J. didn't get any other visitors. I always made Mr. T.J. toast, eggs, and instant coffee. Our business were usually quiet, watching birds and rabbits from the front porch. Every once in a while, Mr. T.J. would lament about the meanness in the world. One morning, Mr. T.J.'s aide found him in his bed, where he had peacefully passed during the night. My team had the honor of helping Mr. T.J. keep his independence and his dignity to the very end. One of my first hospice patients here in Houston was Jenny, a patient in her mid-50s from Central America. Jenny had ALS, which had left her unable to speak, eat, or use her limbs. She was tube-fed, and over the 18 months I saw her, she became more dependent on her breathing machine. Jenny communicated through an eye-controlled computer in both English and Spanish. Jenny always wanted to hear me read her mother's favorite scripture, Psalm 91, in Spanish. Jenny made it her mission to improve my Spanish. As I would read, she would blink on whatever word I was saying wrong and make the robotic voice repeat it until I said it correctly. After mastering Salmo de Ventuno, since she was Catholic, I introduced Jenny to the universal prayer of Pope Clement XI. It deals with themes of suffering, confession, hope, and finding meaning. It helped Jenny to voice her hopes and fears. There's a beautiful section of the prayer that says, Let me love you, my Lord and my God, and see myself as I really am, a pilgrim in this world, a Christian called to respect and love 
all whose lives I touch, those under my authority, my friends, and my enemies. Over the next year, Jenny's condition steadily declined. She could no longer hold her head up, and she grew increasingly dependent on her breathing machine. It took longer and longer for Jenny to speak a sentence to her computer. One day, after over a year of this, Jenny asked me, Can your company help me go to sleep and never wake up? As we dug deeper into that statement, I learned that Jenny was scared that she would be unable to communicate much longer and that she would be locked into her body, which is every ALS patient's greatest fear. I explained that while we could not offer physician-assisted suicide in Texas, Jenny did have several medical interventions that she could choose to discontinue at any time. After a long talk with our medical director, Jenny chose to withdraw her breathing machine in two months' time. After getting her affairs in order, Jenny held a family meeting where she shared a statement that she loaded onto her computer ahead of time, explaining her plan as well as her wishes for her remaining days. She wanted a party with mariachis where she could tell her family goodbye. She also wanted to go to Miami to watch a taping of Sabo Gigante, which is basically the Latinx and Sullivan show. The family rented an RV, loaded it with all of Jenny's medical equipment, and made the trip. Jenny even got to meet the host, Don Francisco. After she had finished her bucket list, Jenny checked into our inpatient unit with her entire family at the bedside. I arranged for a priest to give her last rites. I recited Psalm 91 in the Universal Prayer one more time in Spanish. The nurse gave Jenny medication to help her relax her breathing, and the machine was withdrawn. Jenny stopped breathing later that night, and she was at peace. Finally, I can't tell hospice stories without talking about Miss Ellie. She was a nursing home patient from the Midwest in her late 80s who had advanced dementia. Ellie had a very slow decline. She was on our service for six years. Ellie's only visitor was a lifelong friend who came about once a week until she just couldn't come anymore. Ellie's sisters were frail and elderly and they were unable to make the trip all the way to Texas, although I checked in with them frequently. I learned from them that Miss Ellie's father was a Lutheran minister, and they all grew up singing in the church. Through trial and error, I discovered that Miss Ellie's favorite hymn was Holy, Holy, Holy. For several years, she could follow along when I sang it to her, although it got slower and slower. I believe that the song brought her back to the days when she felt safe with her sisters in her daddy's church. I always said the Lord's Prayer for Miss Ellie, and over the years, even when she could no longer say the words, she ended with the resounding, Amen. Sometimes she would sit quietly in the TV room with the other residents for an extended time before finally saying, Amen. Even though she never remembered my name, Miss Ellie always got excited when she saw me, even across the crowded room. Ellie was very anxious. And the constant activity of the nursing home frightened her, especially when people would wheel equipment down the hall. Once again, the hospice scene became Ellie's family. We always reassured that she was in a safe place. The nurse would park Ellie next to her while she did paperwork. 
day, he would stop by every day. Even when this Ellie wasn't scheduled for a shower. Even if it was just long enough to do your makeup. Which consisted of bright red lipstick and arched eyebrows. The social worker would look at picture books with Miss Ellie. A volunteer would come in the evenings and read to Miss Ellie and take her for a walk in a wheelchair. After Miss Ellie died, we gathered in the conference room to share our memories of Miss Ellie and that sang and prayed for her one last time. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says in our reading today from John. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates the passage, Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Is there anything wrong with loving life? Not at all, in one sense of the phrase. If by loving life we mean living a life filled with happiness, rejoicing in the everyday tasks and events of life, loving one's life is a good thing. However, if loving life means a selfish focus on oneself at the expense of others, then loving life is a bad thing. Jesus was a perfect example of someone who lived their life for others. I think that Jesus did enjoy life, but he didn't see his life as one to be lived for its own sake. Instead, Jesus lived a sacrificial life, caring for others and speaking the truth to power. In speaking Christian, white Christian words had lost their meaning and power and how they can be restored. Marcus Ford wrote, Imagine that it's not about the self and its concerns, about what's in it for me, whether that be a blessed afterlife or prosperity in this life. He went on to say, Christianity's goal is not to escape from this world. It loves this world and seeks to change it for the better. Psychologically, the passage is an encouragement to develop an autonomous and independent sense of self. The present life in this world, with its dependencies and history, must die and be reborn. This is the crisis of every life. In union terms, this is called individuation, which means psychological integration and the development of the autonomous self. This is incidentally what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was getting at when he talked of a world come of age. What he meant was that in a world come of age, people will become adults, which means gladly accepting and gladly taking responsibility for their own life without recourse to or dominance by any other authority. Individuation means awareness of the demands of one's impulses and instincts in light of the demands of one's conscience and moral learning. It negotiates internal processes in light of outward reality. This is a serious process and for most people a lifelong endeavor. You thought individuation wasn't even possible before the age of 35. Nevertheless, difficult though it may be, we have a partner in the endeavor of reaching our own adulthood. That partner is Jesus. Jesus himself had the Father for his guide, and we have Jesus. Thanks.